Welcome back to another episode of Stern Chats. So who do we have on the show today, Sherry? Derek Antel Jr., first year MBA student, is here to tell us about his experiences as a professional race car driver, his entrepreneurial venture called Homer, and how Stern will help catapult him to success after school. Yes, and Derek is also a terrific storyteller, and he gives us a real flavor for what it's like to be behind the wheel. Not only that, but Derek has some pretty cool videos of him racing that you can find on YouTube. Additionally, make sure to read up on Homer in articles in Greenwich Times or the Digital NYC blog. Also, Sherry, I want to say congratulations to all the new members of Stern Chats. We now have 18 people on the team here at Stern Chats. It's incredible to think that just a couple of months ago, it was you and me toiling away on GarageBand and trying to figure out how to make this podcast work. Yes, we're very happy to have expanded and to have all these talented people working to make the show for everybody. I'd like to say congratulations to all the new associate producers, VPs of content, marketing, events, everyone that's on the team. We're so happy to have you. Thank you so much. We really look forward to working with you and taking Stern Chats to the next level. Thanks, Sherry. Let's start the engine and get going. <laughs> Let's do it. It's a, it's a driving pun. It's a dad joke. It's bad. Okay. It's really bad. <laughs> that aside, should we start the show? Let's start the show. Cue that music. From New York University Stern Campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. Here with today's program are your hosts, Frank Ferricchio and Sherry Holt. Hey there, listeners. We're here with Derek Antel Jr. He's a first-year MBA. He's an aspiring entrepreneur. And he's a race car driver. Hey, thanks for being here, Derek. Thank you. Thank you for having me. If you're going to have a name and be a race car driver, Derek Antel Jr. just sounds like one, doesn't it? It certainly does. It doesn't, you know, he, that guy doesn't play the cello. It's one of those double-barreled names, isn't it? And I, and I guess yeah. uh, I owe that to my father, who has the same spelling, so I'd like to pay my respects to him. He's a, he's a great guy. Is he also a, a race car driver? He's not, but uh, but he's a pretty well-renowned plastic surgeon. And he's That's pretty, cool. pretty darn good at what he does. That's so good, man. Always been very impressed with him and uh, always looked up to him as a mentor a role model. But how did you even get into this whole race car driver thing? Well, it's interesting. I actually, I think I got into it first through Need for Speed and, and video games and things like that. If you can believe it, uh, I had my first version of that game on a computer and was driving with up arrow to accelerate, down arrow to brake, and so on and so forth. And it was only later on that I kind of read into the sport a little bit more and realized that if you really wanted to get into it, the easiest way to do that was with karting, what most people, most people think of as go-karting. Go-karting, you mean like, like a lawnmower engine? Is that what we're talking about? Yeah, actually, the first the first carts were really just a bunch of drain pipes that somebody decided to weld together and slap an engine on there. And usually, the the easiest thing to do was to find an old lawnmower engine or something along that that line. Yeah, Sherry, you ever do go karting? I loved go karting. Oh yeah. Yeah, my dad would take me out like 30 or 40 minutes outside of the city and we'd go to a, a go-kart track and I'd zip around at like 10 miles per hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Even at a young age, I was risk averse. <laughs> yeah. You got that foot right on the brake. Um, but how fast do those carts go that you started to race on? Well, that's a good question. Really as fast as you want. Um, there are some that'll go 10 miles an hour. There's some that uh, maybe you've driven before at an indoor track here or there that'll go upwards of 35, 40, where you have to wear a helmet and full full suits. Um, the ones that I got into right off the bat when I was about 10 years old went about 60. 
And interestingly enough, in my first race, we had one of those moments where you kind of have to ask yourself, you know, do I really want to be doing this? Because I started off in the back of the pack, as they often advise newbies to do. And the two carts right in front of me tangled, and one of them flipped over, and one guy landed right on his head. Whoa. A 10-year-old boy or a girl? Uh... I'm not sure how old he was, but he was fine. Mind you, he got up oh and walked my. away and raced again. But Is that uh, guy wearing a helmet? Oh, yeah. No, they were all wearing helmets um, oh, and neck guards and, and the whole the whole shebang. But that, So that's your first race, you said? Very first race. Oh, and that man. Was... Dude, I would have quit right there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's cool um, that we actually found you to do this, this segment of the show because all through launch, for people that don't know what launch is, that's sort of like the big, splashy orientation week for NYU Stern kids that are getting their MBA degree. All I could hear is like, oh, do you, got, you meet the race car driver? And I was like, uh, no. <laughs> They're like, you got to meet him, man. He's drives, he drives race cars. I was like, you said that already. It is not a typical background that people have coming to get their MBA. Definitely not. And that's, it's actually, I kind of like having that reputation now because it was something that I immediately thought this will distinguish me no matter what. Um, one of the first things we had to do in launch, in fact, is bring an object in, basically a show and tell for our entire block and talk about what it meant to, to you personally. And for me, that was a book called Going Faster by Skip Barber, and it's about mastering the art of race car driving. And it was a book that I'd read cover to cover several times, starting at probably about 10 years old, and I have it underlined and annotated, and it's way more detail than you could possibly ever want to know. Everything from how to downshift and brake at the same time, to how to drive in the rain, how to pass other cars, how to avoid crashes, how to recover from accidents. Anything you could possibly want to know. So even at 10, you were obsessed. I was obsessed, that's for sure. So you call race car driving a sport. And in my mind... Uh, I'd love to hear what's on your mind, Sherry. <laughs> Go You're for about it. to no, say something I know. I ridiculous know. <laughs> about race car driving. No, I just want to know, you know, it, it's not the traditional, you know, run around a field, you know, defend your side of the... <laughs> court. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know anything about sports either. But, you know, what is it that makes race car driving physical and defined as a sport? You know, that's that's a tough question, actually. I think I, I always like to tell people it, you have to just get out there and try it at some point. And you have to actually get in something that's fast enough to scare you a little bit. And I really mean that. I think, you know, when you're off on a go-kart track, you know, if the cart maybe goes 30, 40 miles an hour even, some of these courses, you can go around the whole lap without even hitting the brakes once. When you get to the point where you have to brake just to not fly off the track, it changes the game a little bit because it becomes less about, you know, who can take the best line and more about who's really willing to, to push the limits of their own ability and the, and the ability of the machine. You know, you know, whether or not it's physical is obviously a hot debate, but I'd love to get someone out there on the go-kart track who's never done it before at those speeds and just see the look on their face when they come off after 15 minutes because they're usually drenched in sweat and they usually think, geez, I'm exhausted and I don't know, I don't even know how it happened. So some of it is a, is a mental exhaustion as well. Well, you started with go-karts, right? And then where's the progression from there? I mean, you, you started when you were 10. I'm sure you, know, you, don't, you don't just top out at 60 and then you're satisfied. Like, what happens next? That's true. It's, it's funny because in addition to being a money pit, the sport is kind of one of those things where you really can never get enough. You know, 60 eventually starts to feel commonplace and you're going around lap after lap and you feel like you could go even faster. And I think it was on my 16th birthday when my parents got me a Skip Barber three-day racing school as kind of a, an early birthday and Christmas gift. What that is, is it's really kind of an introduction to racing in a full-size open wheel, open, open cockpit formula race car. They're about 1,000 pounds, they have about 200 horsepower, and they go about 130 miles an hour tops. And the Skip Barber Racing School, for those of you that don't know, uh, interestingly enough, just went bankrupt last year, but this is... This Sorry, has been Skip. An... Sorry, Skip and Barber. 
a never a never ending saga. They're actually one of the most well renowned racing schools, probably the best in the country, if not the world. And they operate at dozens of tracks all over the country. So the first time I did that, uh, we actually went to Homestead Miami Speedway, where they have an annual NASCAR event. But that speedway actually has an infield road course as well. So the track was part oval, part road course. Everyone thinks, oh, this is so easy and whatnot, until you get past your first time. You know, and I'm talking like, wow, someone is going right by you, and you think, good race car noise, Derek. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I've, gotten, I've gotten good at it. Yeah, so sounds I, like you've had some practice. <laughs> I, think I, I think I did that to my dad a couple times, and he was like, Derek, I had my foot to the floor. I was going as fast as I could. And, you know, I, I told him, well, Dad, it's, it's all about the corner before the straight. It's not just about the straightaway itself. It's all about the corner before the Ooh. straight. You know what? Just take that, put it up on, like, a typewriter typeface, put a little dash under it, put your name. Boom, you got yourself a winning quote. Yeah, that that's is a good awesome. Old, it's a good old quote. Anticipation, man. proactivity. Well, eventually, and not to sound too preachy, you get to the point where anticipation in, that, in the sport of racing is really critical, but where everything just becomes subconscious. You know, it becomes like walking or riding a bike. And you really need to be that way, too, because when you're going that fast and you're making these split-second decisions, you can't think about it. There's no time to think. You just have to react, and you have to know exactly what to do and what to expect. You're always teetering on the edge of total collapse and crash, right? I mean, you're going as fast as possible without just totally annihilating your car. I'm, not, I'm sure you don't always get it right. I'm sure there's times when you push the limit a little too hard. That's true, and I can tell you about one in particular if you're interested. Yeah. Sherry, you want to hear a car crash story? I'm on the edge of my seat. Yes. Tell us, Derek. Well, there was one particular big crash I had in the Skip Barber car uh, at Lime Rock, which is in upstate Connecticut. It's basically my home track. You know, they say in this sport that if you do it long enough, Either you have crashed or you will crash at some point. It's that simple because you're never going to be able to find your limits really unless you go over them from time to time. So I found my limits pretty quickly on this particular day. It was really only my fourth day ever driving the Skip Barber car. So right after the three-day, it was, it was the first day of what they call a two-day advanced school. So just a practice lapping session at Lime Rock. And what happened is there's a turn there called West Bend up at the northern half of the track where it's a 90-degree right-hander and you go through it entering at probably about 100 miles an hour and then by the time you're at the apex you're still going about 90 or so and i think i basically turned into it a little too early which is a common mistake for for newbies and saw my apex and then by the time i got to the exit of the corner realized that i was running out of road so again a common rookie mistake is i lifted off the gas a little bit just just enough to transfer some weight to the front tires and basically the rear end started to get loose, as they call it, started to, to kick out to the left in a right-hand corner. So as, as you guys probably know, um, what you want to do in that situation is steer into the skid a little bit. They call it counter-steering. So, you know, I, at least I had, I guess, enough wherewithal to do that for my go-karting days. So I steered in a little bit, kind of looked where I wanted to go. Rear end kept going. So I steered in a little bit more, a little bit more left-hand lock, mind you, in a right-hand corner. and rear end just kept on going. So at this point, I'm sideways going probably close to 100 miles an hour. Um, and coming out of that turn, West Bend, you go over a blind rise and under a bridge and then into a, a flat-out downhill right-hander. They call it the downhill at Lime Rock. So basically coming into this in this blind rise, I knew I was going to spin, and by the time you, you know you're going to lose it, you basically want to lock up the brakes so you spin in a straight line, slow down as quick as you possibly can. Um, but you're just along for the ride at that point. You don't know what's going to happen. And it's probably one of the scariest moments you can experience um, in a race car, in any kind of car. 
So at that point, I locked him up and I and I spun to the inside of the track to the right. Um, was going backwards, down over the blind rise, eventually into the grass, eventually hit the guardrail on the right side of the track. You know, it must have been just enough that it kind of jiggled my foot off the brake a little. Then the car rolled back out onto the track, and before I went into West Bend, into that right-hander, I, I was kind of watching my mirrors carefully. Even though it was a practice session, I knew there was a guy behind me a few car lengths back. So the whole time I'm just thinking, please, please miss me. Please don't hit me. He just nails my car. I, I can only guess that he was going probably 70, 80 miles an hour because that is a fast section of the track and it's a blind rise. So my car was basically a sitting duck and he had no idea I was even there. I can only describe that impact as being the single biggest impact of my entire life. Knocked the wind out of me, practically knocked the life out of me. I was screaming momentarily in the car. I thought maybe I, did, maybe I was hurt, maybe this was the end. You know, you kind of come to your senses after a second and you realize, well, okay, I'm able to scream, I'm still awake, I didn't even lose consciousness. Like, maybe this wasn't that bad. But they stopped the, the series, they stopped the event right there. And I'll never forget, actually, that the corner worker on that particular corner, the guy who was first on the scene was this guy, Bruce McGinnis who is now probably in his mid to late 60s. Um, I think he's actually gone through uh, brain surgery recently, he, and he's a real champ. He's, he's one of my favorite uh, Skip Barber instructors, favorite guys, but, but also uh, race car drivers. Um, he was there and, and you know, checked me out, make sure I was okay, unbelted me and you know, had me moving kind of slowly. And you know, by the time you realize that you can move all your arms and legs, everything, you, you're like, okay, this, this wasn't that bad. And I kind of unbelted and stood up and took a look at the, uh, what was left of my car um, the whole left side of it was gone. Both left tires ripped off, you know, the whole left side of the bodywork. The whole right side of, of my opponent's car was also destroyed. He was further down the track, off in the, off in the gravel trap. And I just looked at the car and actually started sobbing at that point because I knew my parents are going to kill me for this. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, so you're, it's not, I'm alive sobbing. It's your parents are going to kill you. <laughs> Your priorities are, are, are mixed up there, Derek. In, in a strange place, aren't they? I'm pretty sure you're experiencing an overwhelming amount of emotion and thoughts and, yep. you know, yeah. sort of projecting what could have been and what is. And that is just, that's an unbelievable You're lucky story. to walk away from that at all. You know, I was really in shock, come to think of it. And it's kind of like if you've ever played football or a sport that involves contact like that, you know, imagine the biggest hit you could possibly have in, in football, you know, like two guys running right at each other full speed or something. Now imagine both of those guys weigh three times as much and are moving three times as fast. Like, that's that's what this felt like. So I was just in a daze. And, yeah, I mean, when I, when I eventually walked back to the pit lane, uh, you know, kind of realized what had happened, and I thought, all right, this is one of those moments where everyone has those moments where you think, do I really want to be still doing this? Like, is this something I want to continue doing? Um, but I said, you know, yeah, I think I do because this is something I've always loved for many, many years of my life. And I'm not about to give it up just because of something like this and I actually kind of talked myself into it by thinking, you know, well, the pros who have this happen, you know, relatively speaking, this probably wasn't even that bad of an accident. They probably have this happen like once a, a month or a couple times a year or something and get up and do it again. So 
I still had one day left uh, the next day that I'd already paid for. I uh, wasn't going to let that go to waste, so got in the car again the very next day, and actually at this point went out and bought myself a new helmet. I was yeah, using... treat yourself to a yeah. new helmet there, Derek. I was... And a big glass of whiskey. Yeah. <laughs> if you are over 21 If you're over 21, yourself. if you're not, if you're not over 21, then I would not treat yourself to a glass of whiskey. Yeah, it might have been like illegal. 17. <laughs> oh, yeah, then no. You have yourself a cream soda there, pal. <laughs> yep, Exactly. So I, yeah, so I went out and bought myself a nice new helmet and one of those Hans devices that, that kind of supports your neck. Thankfully, the guy actually hit me from behind, so there was no whiplash or anything like that. But, you know, he didn't drive again the next day, so I'm guessing he might have felt a little bit, uh, a little bit of the after effects. Wasn't hurt or anything, but uh, might have been a little sore. But I just decided, you know, I'm going to buy all the right safety gear and... The, the joking kind of rule of thumb is you should buy a $1,000 helmet if you have a $1,000 head. Oh. Yeah, sure. What if your head I, is worth a million dollars? I was going to say, I'd buy myself a million-dollar helmet, <laughs> yeah. Derek. There's, there's got to be a helmet out there that's a that's million dollars. Who knows, if you keep looking hard enough. Like Floyd Mayweather has a million-dollar helmet, I'm sure. Yeah, but well, actually, actually drove again the next day and went even faster, put up an even better lap time and just... Yes, that is, see, that is, what, that is interesting, and I want to bring this up. Uh, we started the episode by saying you're an aspiring entrepreneur, and we're going to get to that in a second. We're going to talk about Homer, which is this company that you're trying to start here. Mm-hmm. But the notion of risk tolerance is definitely coming up for me. You're a race car driver, and you got into a crash, and you're right back out on the track. And you're also an entrepreneur, which is a pretty risky business. Do you think you have a different risk tolerance than most people? That's, that's probably true to some extent. I think uh, I, I like being on the edge, and I like pushing myself to my limits because... I kind of like to think, you know, you only get one life, really, so why not do it all? Why not do as much as you can? And if, if, there's, any, if there's ever any reason not to let you hold yourself back, in my mind, it's simply because of your own personal fears. I often am one of those people who regrets more what I don't try as opposed to the things that I do and that they fail. Homer's has, has had its ups and downs already, for sure. Um, it's been about a couple of years since I even really incorporated but uh, I'm hoping to bring it through Stern and hoping to uh, resume growing it as, as fast as I possibly can and get it to where it needs to be. And, uh, you know, it'll be a project that I'm probably working on for many years, but that's how these things go. You just have to be willing to stick it out. I think uh, I've always been told that perseverance is kind of the number one thing, I think, that separates entrepreneurs who ultimately make it from those who decide to go back and get a real job. That's true. That and 800 other quotes that sometimes contradict each other. I mean, there's just so <laughs> yes, much advice true. out there. That's true. Uh, you know, you don't, you don't know. And that's why when some people think about entrepreneurship, they don't even want to get started, yeah. right? So, I mean, have you ever taken a personality test? Have you ever, like, assessed the fact that you're able to tolerate more risk than most people? You know, I don't know if I've actually ever taken a test that specifically focused on risk, but it's interesting you mention that because we all, uh, as incoming first-year MBA students, had to take some sort of a personality or leadership test to basically judge your leadership style, and it, and it rated you in a couple of different attributes. Basically, the, the top two that I had were the, mo- the ones that were most associated with entrepreneurs and CEOs. Um, one of them was the ability to coordinate, the ability, to, I guess, uh, to manage and delegate tasks. Um, and the other was the ability to investigate resources. So, you know, if, if there's a, a problem where someone just needs to eventually just pick up the phone and start cold calling people for information, I'm the guy who's usually willing to do that. So I guess it goes a little beyond just being able to tolerate risk, but being able to take the action when needed, because I know that the hardest thing to do is always just to start. And once you start something, it just gets easier from there. Well, it sounds like you use your physical vehicle, your car, to get you to where you wanted to go. And now you're utilizing Stern as a vehicle to get you to this new 
entrepreneurial venture and to set you up for success after school. So what else are you looking to get out of your Stern experience that can help you really set up Homer for success? Well, I think probably the number one thing I, I looked forward to at Stern is just meeting a lot of interesting people and a lot of people who could potentially advise me and, and really point me in the right direction. Because as you said before, with entrepreneurship, there's a lot of conflicting advice. And, and some of the worst advice you can get, I think, is from the people who have actually been successful because you know you really learn more from your failures than you do from your successes. There's a lot of great professors here. Um, there's a lot of great resources in terms of mentorship and coaching. And I think ultimately, the more advice you have, the better you're able to kind of triangulate your own vision and figure out what it is you really care about and your values. Um, and some of the best entrepreneurs out there, I think the ones that I really respect the most are the ones who stay true to their own values. Um, whether that be, you know, integrity and honesty or, you know, if you're, let, let's say, the, uh, the former Uber CEO, someone who's just really ruthless and just wants to win at all costs and really competitive. Um, there's different ways to do it, right? But if you're not true to yourself, I think you're inherently not going to end up running a venture that you believe in. And then you're not going to be as committed to it and you're not going to persevere. Absolutely. So tell us about the pivot from race car driving to Homer or if there was any overlap. Like, what yeah. was that journey like? Yeah, I, I want to hear how Homer started. I mean, I want to hear yeah. how you even got the idea. <clears throat> it arose basically from a situation I was in where I had a really tough time renting an apartment in Manhattan, one that I was at least satisfied with. I think we, we all can eventually find a place that works, but you're never really 100% comfortable with it, right? You always find yourself paying thousands of dollars for, for a, a matchbox. Yeah, a yeah. matchbox or, you know, even if it's small, let's say a place that is infested with roaches and you had no idea going into it. Or, you know, maybe the, the sink or the dishwasher or something breaks like every week and then the landlord doesn't even call you back. They refuse to fix it. Situations like that. So I really kind of thought to myself after a while, well, there's really some power in tenant to tenant communication. Because in this one particular situation, uh, I had a landlord that tries to ra tried to raise the rent at the end of the year on myself and my roommate by an exorbitant amount, over 20% in one year. And it went from being a good deal to not such a good deal anymore. So, you know, me being the guy who uh, likes to just pick up the phone and just explore, found out the landlord's number somehow, went around online, called him up, and I said, hey, I'm Derek in, uh, in 3F or whatever it is. And... Um, I'm just curious to know about this rent increase. You know, I'm in the real estate game myself, and I know that 20% in one year is is a little much. You know, and I said, what are you basing your your new rent on? Uh, what are your comps, essentially, as they as they say, your comparables? And he says, oh, well, other leases that are being signed in the building. So I said, okay, well, you know, I thanked him for his time, hung up, and uh, then I went to to explore, and basically I was friendly with my neighbors at the time, so knocked on a few doors. And uh, one guy in particular, I basically said, hey, like, kind of I'll tell you mine if you tell me yours. What are you paying? I'm curious. Let's let's do a little survey and see if this is fair. And to my delight and surprise, uh, a lot of other people were willing to share that information pretty openly and were curious as well, as, as much as I was, to find out what some of the other people in the building were paying in rent. And that, that's, that's kind of what got me going. So actually, despite having to move out of that building, at my next building, I went and tried to basically take a survey. Um, this is kind of the, the first step with, with starting any new venture is you want to do some data gathering. You want to find out if the idea you're pursuing is worth pursuing at all. So I actually had the bright idea to kind of slip some notices under everybody's doors and tried to make them all personal saying, hey, you know, I'm Derek. I'm in 3D or whatever it was at that point. How say, personal did you make these things? Because that could get kind of creepy. Come over for dinner. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's like, hey, Andy, 
I see you walking your dog all the time, and I know from my internet research that you really like tennis. What's your rent you're paying? Like that's that's like how far did this go? It was it was more direct than that. I think it was more just like, hey, I'm trying to do a survey of the rents, um, and I'll and I'll gladly share all the results with everyone who participates. Here's my email. Feel free to send me a quick blurb about your situation and tell your story. Unfortunately, before I think anybody could even see that letter or read it, the super of the building happened to go and pick up and remove all these notices, and then I think within a week, I was served with an eviction notice, slipped under my door. So my roommates were not really happy about that. Yeah, that's a pebble on the race car track, I think. I was going to yeah, say, for sure. you must be such a thorn in any <laughs> landlord or, or super side. A little bit, a little bit. Um, you know, I, I had to beg and plead to, to keep our space there. I think we went to the leasing office with coffee and donuts and, and basically said, please, we're such good tenants, we won't do it again. You know, our, our roommate here, Derek, is just trying to do a little experiment for some class he's taking in entrepreneurship and... You know, you hopefully you can understand that. Um, so we were allowed to stay, thankfully. But yeah, I think I think I realized at that point that hey, this guy's scared. Um, you know, he there's there's clearly some value in what I'm doing here because he doesn't want this to happen. It's that simple. <laughs> I think that the power relationship between the tenants and the landlords and the brokers is very much skewed for the owners. Like the the owners have all of the power, and I mean. As a renter in Manhattan, I mean, I was extremely dissatisfied with my entire renting experience, and I felt like I had no power. Is that what is that the dynamic that you're trying to shift? Yeah, absolutely. I think ultimately I learned very quickly that the only really best defense a renter has against situations like this, or really any rough rental situation, is just to not sign that lease in the first place. But the problem is when you go into a new deal, you you have no you have no information. You really don't even know what you're getting. You don't know without having lived at a place if the the toilet leaks or if uh, you know the floors creak or you name it. Any number of different different kind of quirky problems. Um, but you know there's an easy fix for that. It's called ratings and reviews. Yelp has it. Glassdoor has it. A lot of other websites and apps out there have that exact type of model. So I think the first step toward fixing the system would be allowing renters to, to rate and review their landlords, their buildings, maybe even take some pictures and put them up there for everybody to see and, and save some old photos so that, you know, oftentimes you go and you look at a, a listing right now these days that's just been posted by a broker with no picture. So you have no idea what the place looks like and you have no idea what the place even used to look like for reference. So I think a lot of brokers want to actually withhold that information on purpose because their whole game is they want to get you on the phone and they want to get you, you know, sitting across the desk from them. And the reason I know that is because I actually went out and got my uh, my real estate license myself a couple of years ago just because I wanted to kind of learn a little bit more about that side of the business as well. I realized that these guys are really, guys and girls, are driven solely by their commissions. I mean, that's 100% of their income. So if they, if they don't close that deal, if they don't get you to sign on the dotted line, they might not eat that week. Um, so they will do everything they can to get you into, a, into an apartment, even if it's not the right fit for you. And ultimately, the only defense you have against that is just better information. So that's really what Homer looks to provide. Ultimately, well, that's a cool that's a cool startup idea. I hope, I hope it I hope it goes well. What stage is it at right now? So we're still developing our, our beta. We actually went through, like I said, some ups and downs where I was trying to develop a beta over the last uh, couple of years. It wasn't really working with the right people. They weren't really 100% committed to it. So we had to kind of start from scratch. And now I'm working with a new team of software developers who are way more experienced and I think are really going to be good for us. That's cool. Are you doing the 300K Entrepreneur's Challenge? Yeah, I'm actually planning on doing it uh, probably my second year. I think uh, this first year, 
you know, people when they come into a business school program also want to take some time to kind of explore, you know, different career areas and soul search. So I'm going to take full advantage of the summer and try to do an internship in, in an industry that I haven't been in before. But no, I think uh, I think when things start to cool down a bit, just you wait. Homer is going to be unleashed and there's going to be T-shirts going around and, and hopefully uh, much more, much more to come. Yeah. So tell us the story. So you're <laughs> wearing for, for the listeners who can't see you right now, although you can catch his picture on Instagram. Uh, you're wearing a shirt with what I'm assuming is the Homer icon, which is a cute little face with a exactly marigold color background. Can you tell us about the story of the icon? Sure. Well, the icon is actually Homer himself. So interestingly enough, yeah, the app is is a little a little bird, and he more or less serves as your virtual real estate broker. So all the questions that you would normally be asked by a broker, such as, hey, what's your price range? Uh, you know, where where do you work? Where do you need to be? He would ask you those questions and then help find you your ideal place before you even have to deal with a human being, which a lot of millennials these days would love, I imagine. But he would he would go even further too, is to ask you things like, hey, um, if there are any other points of interest. That, that you need to that you need to be at, and it could be anything from friends and family to a significant other's place to a favorite bar or restaurant. He would actually try to help you minimize your transit time between all of those places and show you where you can live to save as much as you possibly can. Oh, that's great! Everybody wants to save money. That is that's sort of a step further because I know um, competitors like Street Easy sort of have a couple of different functions where you can sort of check a couple boxes and say, you know, these are my specifications, and then you know, it populates with a whole list. But what what's the difference between a Street Easy and a Homer? Well, Homer is really like, the way I like to think about it is like AI for real estate. It, it, it Imagine Homer as being, like I said, your virtual broker, but he's way more intelligent, will give you way more information than a normal broker would, because there's also not that agency problem. With most brokers in New York City, or practically all of them, they actually are working for the landlord, providing a service to the landlord to help rent their apartment. But because the demand in New York is so high, and this is what makes New York unique, um, you as the renter actually pay for that service, which is provided to the landlord. So there's kind of that, uh, that misalignment of incentives there. Um, Homer works strictly for you as a renter. Um, he wants to find you the ideal place. And when you find a place you want to rent, his goal is to get you in there as quickly as possible. So, so he'll actually send your lead directly to the listing agent, and it'll actually send it along with a score, a probability of, of the chance of you actually closing a deal with them based on some of the uh, places you're looking at nearby, um, how much information maybe you've, you've provided, Homer, your name, your price range, or, you know, all kinds of things. Um, so really, it's just it's a lot more uh, machine learning, I think, is involved, ultimately just trying to arm you as the renter with better information to allow you to make a better decision. Homer sounds like such a great gentleman. Yeah, Homer it, sounds like he'd be a great friend to have. I was just about to say, <laughs> is Homer your best friend? Yeah, either that or Homer <laughs> would be that friend that corrects you in public. Uh, <laughs> that's so true. <laughs> it's either that. You meant to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or he, he'd be what I call the will actually friend. We were like, oh, here's an interesting fact. And they go, well, actually. Oh, my God. Yeah. I've never heard that before. <laughs> oh, those people are the worst. They think they're well, a human Google. We, we, we wouldn't want him to be the well, actually friend. But but we would want him to point out, I think, some things that maybe you as a, as a first-time or new renter wouldn't know to ask about or wouldn't know to look for. Oh, sure. Um, and just one example of that is um, if you're looking at a particular apartment that you think looks pretty nice, um, but and this has happened to me and friends of mine, too, Maybe you find out that the landlord of that apartment has a half a star rating on Yelp. And if you look at all the reviews, there's all these horror stories of, of them, you know, failing to fix things and, you know, leaky 
toilets and things from the uh, neighbor next door, and then you know you have a hole in your wall for months. It's happened to people I know. Homer would point that out to you up front. He would say, hey, just so you know, this landlord has a pretty bad rating. Please take that into consideration. <laughs> That's cool. I think there's a lot of people just at NYU Stern that would probably use that kind of Homer situation because, I mean, we're here in the West Village in New York City, one of the coolest places in New York City. But, I mean, you have to be very careful getting an apartment here. I mean, the prices and all the challenges. I mean, Sherry, you just did it recently. It's not easy, right? No. I mean, if you need a focus group participant who you are offering you know, a discount to. I am your girl. So so you have dabbled now in race car driving, real estate. You're an MBA student, and you say that you want to pursue something completely different in an internship. What is that area, and what do you see for your future? So that's a good question. I actually, at this point, I'm thinking it'd be nice to get on the financing side of real estate um, and really kind of look even one one level up and try to Find out what goes into structuring a real estate deal. So at this point, I'm actually looking for an internship in real estate investment banking for this summer. And if I could find something like that, I think it would be a home run. Just in terms of giving me more of that high-level view of what goes on in the industry behind making those buy and sell decisions. I feel like in, in your path through Homer, you have done an excellent job of really networking and speaking to people through in in a whole a lot of different industries. Yeah, the networking here is supreme. It is you really NYU Stern has got that network thing locked down. Yeah, and it's not just the faculty and uh, the speakers who I brought in, but I'm sure it's your fellow classmates who can infuse the classroom with new ideas and new energy, but also potentially help on any. Mm future ventures. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Some of the classmates I've met so far have been really impressive. There's a couple of other people that have already been running businesses of their own. There's people that already have other master's degrees. You know, there are some people that have really impressive backgrounds and that you just kind of naturally want to know more about them and and how they came to where they are. That's cool. So, Derek, before we kind of wrap up, is there anything else that you want to say to us? Do you anything else you want to plug? Yeah, actually, so on, on the racing note, uh, a former competitor of mine, this guy named Joseph Newgarden, I was watching him at Sonoma last weekend. He went into the final race of the IndyCar Series championship, leading the points, and ended up winning the whole championship. So Joseph Newgarden is, is the new IndyCar Series champion, and I, and I can't say enough about that guy. It was inspiring to watch him drive and to have the opportunity to drive against him. Um, and he's also recovering from a pretty serious accident last year at Texas Motor Speedway, which you can, I'm sure, look up on YouTube at some point. Broke his shoulder and his wrist and went into the wall pretty hard there. But he's back on his feet and, and was totally dominant this whole year. Yeah, shout out to Mr. Newgarden. Congratulations on your win. Congratulations. So is, will you get behind the wheel again anytime soon? You know, I probably will as soon as I can. And I like to think that... Uh, you know, you can really do it at any time. You know, Paul Newman, people don't even realize this, but he started driving when he was north of 50 years old. And that was kind of his passion, lifelong thing. And he ended up, uh, I think, finishing second place overall at uh, 24 Hours of Le Mans. So he, I thought he just made salad dressings. Paul Newman? Yeah, just salad dressings. <laughs> He's also probably a lifelong entrepreneur, lots of different, uh, <laughs> lots of different things, you know? That salad dressings and Oreos. And, is delicious. Yeah, a salad dressing curator with beautiful blue eyes. <laughs> the icy blue eyes of a Siberian husky. But all of his businesses were probably just so that he could get behind the wheel again. Yeah, that's uh, true. You're that's probably true. right. Ulterior motive. Well, Derek, it was so great to talk to you today. We really appreciated you coming in here. Good luck with Homer. I appreciate it. It sounds Frank. really, really exciting. 
and good luck with everything at Stern. I mean, you got a bright uh, future ahead of you. You got a, a really fun couple of years that are, are going to happen. Yeah, it's going to be really excited, and I really, really look forward to what's in store for the next couple of years. And thank you guys so much again for inviting me in here. This has been a great opportunity. Yeah, did you have fun? Oh, yeah, I had tons of fun. It was great having you on. And for just one last time, can you give us your, your best car sound? It was <laughs> yeah. so good. Yeah, give us a car sound. Yeah. Yeah, there you Wait, go. That's so good. <laughs> he okay. got the, he got, he got the whole. He got the whole effect in there. All right, thanks, Derek. Yeah, I appreciate it, guys. Have a good one.